as I was saying a little earlier in my left-wing rant, the subject of our next discussion is considered one of the most, well, reviled American political figures of the 20th century, one of history's great villains, and I think that's being kind to him. But a new book on J. Edgar Hoover, the former director of the FBI, seeks to modulate that idea. Was he really a one-dimensional tyrant who strong-armed the United States into submission? The book is called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century, and it's written by Beverly Gage. Uh, Beverly is Professor of 20th Century American History at Yale University, and she's been able to use previously classified and never-before-seen sources to seek an understanding of the man, a public servant who wielded immense power against the backdrop of a changing America, and one that had more support for his conservatism than perhaps Americans would like to admit. Beverly, welcome to our little wireless program and uh, congratulations on your epic, which I understand has taken you quite some time to write. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's great to be here and it's great to be here in part because uh, after about 13 years of working on this off and on, it has been released into the world. So now it's fun to just talk about it. Let's begin with the title uh, of the book. Who was a G-man and why is this so apt in defining Hoover? G-Man was the nickname that FBI agents acquired in the 1930s. It stands for Government Man. And there was a brief moment when I tried to persuade my editor that Government Man would be a great title. And she assured me that G-Man <laughs> was a much better title. And I would tend to agree at this point. Um, and I think what's interesting about the title G-Man are a couple of things. One is that it's in the 1930s that the FBI gets this nickname. And it's partly because they're seen as sort of the, you know, avenging crusaders of the New Deal state and of the New Deal's war on crime. So really they're in the heart of liberalism. Uh, and then that J. Edgar Hoover himself was, you know, a lifetime government servant. He was head of the FBI from 1924 to 1972. So 48 years and uh, kind of embodied the growth of the federal government. Of course, he uh, demanded very high standards of his uh, recruits. They had to dress smartly and uh, not drink and, and uh, not to campaign politically. That's right. When he came in as FBI director in the 20s, his main goal was really to professionalize what had been a pretty kind of corrupt, chaotic, backwater little bureau in the government. And one of the ways he did that was by creating a very, very specific type of man who was going to be an FBI agent. And I think it still is many people's idea of what an FBI agent actually is, right? A tall white guy in a suit with, uh, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, he would have been wearing a hat, but um, this kind of professional government man who was made in Hoover's own image. Tell me about Hoover's own background. I've never thought to wonder. 
Well, he himself is a pretty pure product of Washington, D.C. He was born there in 1895. He never lived anywhere else, and he died there in 1972. And so part of the story of this book is, is uh, it's obviously Hoover's own story, but it's also a story about Washington, D.C., which is uh, not much of a city in the 1890s. And then, uh, of course, by the time he dies, is, is a really important center, not only of national, but global power. Now, what gives your book added weight over, well, the quite significant biographies that have come before is that, uh, as I said in introducing you, you've been able to access never-before-seen sources. Tell us about them. Yeah, so the last biographies of Hoover were published about 30 years ago. Hoover himself died in 1972. Uh, Then there were a rash of biographies that came out in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So you can see, even then, uh, it took uh, about a decade, decade and a half to write (laughs) the biography of a man who lived for so long and did so many things. Are we talking Um, hagiography? Uh, they were not necessarily. No, I would say there were um, uh, there was some really good sort of scholarly muckraking, and then there were some more uh, sensational but also pretty good works of journalism. Um, but merely the passage of time, uh, 30 years, means that many, many more files have come out. I myself used the Freedom of Information Act actually to require a lot of files that were about the FBI's relationship with conservative and right-wing groups, which I think was a lot less known than his relationships to and hatred of the left. Um, and then there are a lot of really fascinating files that came out in the wake of the Cold War, in the end of the Cold War, when the FBI could start revealing some of its Soviet espionage operations. And those were very useful to me, too. Were there any tapes like the Nixon tapes? Uh, well, we have better access to uh, to all of the Nixon tapes and actually the Lyndon Johnson tapes as well, um, all, many of which involve Hoover. He was very close to both of those presidents, and they liked to talk about him when he wasn't there as well. Um, Hoover himself was, uh, in many ways, much too smart to tape himself. He taped a lot of other people, but not himself. Tell me about Operation Solo. Operation Solo is one of these really fascinating new sets of files uh, that came out over the last 10, 15 years. And uh, for the FBI, it was really one of their great prides. Um, Beginning in the late 1950s, they recruited a couple of brothers who uh, had been very involved in the American Communist Party, had left, but then re-entered the party in the late 50s, unbeknownst to their former comrades as FBI informants. Um, One of them became the international representative of the American Communist Party and so spent decades going around and meeting people like Mao and Castro and Khrushchev and uh, being inside the Kremlin. And his brother, equally amazingly, was the secret financial courier between the Soviet Union and the American Party. Um, So they did this for 
25, 30 years. Um, and they're really just fascinating files, not only about the FBI and everything that it was learning from them, uh, but also uh, about these, um, you know, kind of gatherings all around the world. Beverly, I, I'm an ex-com. I was a teenage com many, many years ago. And uh, at the time, I remember it was a common view that half the members of any Communist Party meeting in the US were FBI agents. The FBI had pretty thoroughly infiltrated the party. It is absolutely true. So they wouldn't have been interestingly, agents, right, which is to say Hoover's men, because he didn't like his men to go undercover. Um, he thought, you know, they might be tempted, they might actually be uh, converted. And so the FBI tended to use uh, informants who were either people that they paid to go, you know, join up with the local CP branch, or people who were already inside that they were able to flip and pay. I've just been reviewing a doco, a French documentary actually, on the Ku Klux Klan in which uh, Hoover figures largely. What was his attitude on race? Well, I think there's no question that Hoover was uh, deeply racist in many ways. And one of the really interesting institutions that I got to know a little bit in doing this research was his college fraternity, which was a fraternity called Kappa Alpha. It's still around today. But Kappa Alpha had actually been created in the 1860s after the Civil War to carry on the cause of the white South the honor of General Robert E. Lee, the Confederate leader. And by the time Hoover joined it early in the 20th century, um, it was a pretty explicitly segregationist fraternity. It had some very, very famous members who... Um, one of whom was Thomas Dixon, who had written the novels that became the basis for the famous racist film Birth of a Nation. So he sort of grew up, um, I would say, steeped in that kind of racial ideology. And he put it into effect in lots of ways at the Bureau. Though, since you mentioned the Klan, there are also some very interesting moments where the FBI is going quite aggressively against white supremacist organizations that are involved in violence, that are involved in lynching, um, and, uh, and he does that with the Klan. Now, Hoover, of course, hounded American communists and leftists, but I.F. Stone, who was one of my heroes, conceded that he also used his power to face down Joe McCarthy. That's right. It's really another fascinating story that I think goes uh, counter to many people's image of Hoover as one of the kind of great anti-communist zealots of the 40s and 50s. So there is no question that anti-communism was the great cause of Hoover's life. He was a deep believer in it, but uh, he was also really quite suspicious of figures like Joseph McCarthy, uh, he shared certain ideas, but he thought McCarthy was a demagogue. He thought that McCarthy was reckless. He thought that McCarthy was often lying. <laughs> and so at very strategic moments, as I.F. Stone indicated, um, it's actually Hoover who is saying, you know, uh, effectively, there are better ways to be an anti-communist and uh, don't, don't put your faith in Joe McCarthy. 
I'm talking to Beverly Gage, Professor of History and American Studies at Yale and author of G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. I learned so many things that uh, I find somewhat discomforting. For example, he hated the John Birches. That's right. Hoover has a very funny relationship with the American right as it begins to develop in uh, the late 50s and early 60s. So they really love him (laughs) because he is an exponent of lots of conservative values um, on race, on law and order, um, on uh, anti-communism in particular. But Hoover himself kind of wants to take advantage of their support and then is pretty skeptical of groups like the John Birch Society, which was a sort of big grassroots conservative anti-communist association. And he thought that they were full of conspiracy theorists. Um, He called them basically kind of right-wing wackos. Uh, He didn't want to be too closely associated with them. And he particularly didn't like groups that seemed to be sort of vigilante in their orientation. He really thought these uh, these things ought to be left to the professionals. Beverly, one likes to fantasize on what he might have thought of Donald Trump. I think that, you know, Hoover would have thought of Trump in a lot of the ways that he thought of Joe McCarthy, which is to say, you know, they might share some ideas, but uh, he would have thought Uh, of Trump as being pretty reckless. And of course, Donald Trump has been at war with the FBI (laughs) and has been really condemning the FBI. And there was no greater crime that you could commit in J. Edgar Hoover's eyes than to criticize the FBI. So Trump definitely would have been on his enemies list for that reason alone. Let's circle back to his early life because some of your freshest takes concern his upbringing in that respectable middle class, but what you say is emotionally beleaguered family. Yeah, Hoover used to sort of tell the story of his own childhood as this really idyllic experience, kind of evoking, you know, as many people do about their childhoods, a more innocent time, a time when everything made sense. Uh, But when I really began to research his family, I found a lot of much more complicated, troubling evidence, the suicide of one of his grandfathers, um, the murder of one of his um, aunts when he was a young boy, and probably most notably his own father's mental illness, which uh, looks like it was something along the lines of severe depression and clearly was just a big shadow over Hoover's childhood. Okay, now at what point, well, here we have this formative, these formative years, at what point does he become an impassioned anti-communist? Those ideas form incredibly early on, and actually one of the reasons that I myself got interested in writing about Hoover is that I was working on uh, an earlier book that was about a 
bomb attack on Wall Street, a terrorist attack in 1920, that was understood to be probably an anarchist attack, and I think rightly, though it was never solved, but an attack by political radicals on the citadel of capitalism um, in the first Red Scare that followed the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution um, and played out in the United States. And Hoover was there as an incredibly young man, not only investigating that bombing, uh, but running this little operation called the Radical Division in the Justice Department that was effectively the first peacetime attempt to uh, keep surveillance on anarchists, communists, leftists of all sorts. Now, Hoover didn't join up to fight in World War One. I. I trust he didn't have a bone spur problem, but he began work in the Justice Department just after it broke out, and that was the defining decision for his career. That's right. He graduated from law school in 1917, which is just the moment that the United States is entering the First World War. He lived in Washington, he went to school in Washington, and he moved straight into the Justice Department, which really needed, uh, you know, talented young lawyers at the moment when all of these new war duties are taking off. Interestingly, his very first job was to help administer German internment in the United States, which isn't something that we think about very much. But during the First World War, there were something on the order of of 10,000 German citizens interned in the United States as as being disloyal to the war effort. Nothing like the huge number of Japanese Americans who were interned in the Second World War, but still significant. So uh, he had an impact on the Justice Department. He absolutely did. And one of those first, you know, from the very first moment that he was recognized as uh, not only being kind of smart, talented young man, but having an ideological vision, a lot of which centered around anti-communism. And in fact, he wrote the Justice Department's first ever briefs on the communist parties when they organized in the United States in 1919. And then he also came of age in a kind of professional government tradition, um, being really steeped in this world of career government service that was supposed to be sort of outside of politics, insulated from politics. He lived in Washington and never voted as a result. Residents of Washington couldn't vote at that point. Um, And so he has both of these traditions and uh, he brings them to the Justice Department and he stays there for the rest of his life, um, really expressing those ideas. And all through his life, of course, he had a genius for filing systems. If there was one thing that J. Edgar Hoover was very good at, uh, it was filing paperwork. Um, uh, He had a job during college at the Library of Congress. It's one of the ways that he learned to systematize information. And then he built this massive bureaucracy that got a lot of its uh, power and energy from having, uh, you know, an effective filing system. I should say it's both a blessing and a curse for his biographer, because on the one hand, a lot of stuff got written down, which is great. On the other hand, there's so much paper, and nobody can possibly read it all. Let's uh, jump ahead now to uh, him taking over at the FBI. It's an American intelligence and law enforcement uh, monster. 
But uh, in 1924, he uh, arrives with a big broom. Yeah, he was just 29 years old when he I was hadn't realized that. He was just a child, for heaven's sake. He was really a child, and he was much younger, in fact, than many of the agents who worked for him um, and many of the people that he was supervising. But he was brought in in that moment in 1924 to kind of clean out what had been a corrupt and pretty incompetent little bureau in the government. And during the 20s and early 30s, that's really how he makes his name. It's not so much, puts aside some of these earlier um, mistakes and anti-communist excesses of the first Red Scare. And he really focuses his energy on persuading people that his new professionalized team of lawyers and accountants were, were model government servants. And that's what he does in the 20s. And not long after, of course, the New Deal comes along, that flexing of federal muscle. But you make the point that the irony was that while Hoover was a beneficiary, he hated the liberalism of FDR. That's right. It's a funny paradox because FDR, on the one hand, really gives Hoover most of his power. Uh, he expands the FBI's role in crime fighting and then during the war, he really expands the FBI's role in domestic political surveillance as well. And those are still the two great duties of the FBI. He also encourages Hoover to get very involved in public relations, to kind of sell the FBI as this uh, kind of model government agency. That's where the name G-Man comes from. Uh, but Hoover himself was, of course, very skeptical of certain kinds of social liberalism. He's very skeptical of kind of liberal eggheads from the Ivy League. I don't think he would have liked me very much. Uh, and so he gets all of this power during the New Deal, but he uses a lot of that power, in fact, uh, to contain the left and to contain liberals and civil libertarians. Now, clearly, American history tends to be told through the election cycles. But as you point out, Hoover's story shows that an unelected and sometimes unaccountable official can find power outside that process. The most amazing thing about Hoover is simply the fact that he was there so long for those 48 years. And that means that he served under four Democrats, four Republicans uh, as president, uh, almost 20 or so attorneys general. And it's hard to think of you know, an elected official exercising that kind of sustained power in that variety of uh, administrations. But Beverly, the leftist view, one I've always held, is that he maintained that power through another sort of file, his dirt files. They were so afraid of him. There is a lot of truth to that, and uh, it's the dominant image of Hoover for a very good reason. If you were a person of any prominence, and even if you were a person of very little prominence, um, Hoover might have all sorts of information on you. It's clear that that was the case with presidents, congressmen, often with celebrities. Uh, but the point that I try to make in the book is that it wasn't the only source of Hoover's power. There were lots of other ways 
that he sustained that career and that he built his own power. Of course, left-wing mythology that I uh, embrace reminds us that he drove Gene Seberg to suicide in Paris. There is the, the terrible attacks on Martin Luther King Jr. He was insatiable. There are big sections of the book, particularly once we get into the 1960s, that really focus on the FBI's attacks on King in particular. Um, and there's some really interesting new material about that that doesn't, I think, fundamentally change what we already know. But in many ways, uh, getting more and more details makes it all the more horrific. Um, and the FBI's experience in the 60s with programs like COINTELPRO is, is in many ways the lowest point of Hoover's career. I think we should talk to that. Describe ContraPro to us. So COINTELPRO, which uh, stands for Counterintelligence Program, was uh, one of the most outrageous and now I think most notorious programs of Hoover's career. So what the FBI meant by counterintelligence was not just surveillance, not just keeping track of people, uh, not just building cases against them, but in fact, engaging in active uh, disruption, sowing of paranoia, uh, sending anonymous letters and fake press reports, trying to get infighting in various organizations, infiltration through informants, a whole variety of disruptive tactics. And they use a lot of that in the 1960s to go after the civil rights movement, the black power movement, the new left, the anti-war movement. Uh, interestingly, I think there are two pieces of COINTELPRO that are a little less well known. Um, one is that it actually started in the 50s as a program aimed at the Communist Party um, and only expanded quite a lot later. And then the second is that though most of this was aimed at the left, um, there was a COINTELPRO aimed at white supremacist organizations, the Ku Klux Klan most notably, but neo-Nazis and other groups as well. Beverly, you remind us that one of the keys to understanding Hoover is that he was foremost a lawyer and an organiser, not an investigator. And you've got this extraordinary image of him spending hours dictating memos on typographical errors. <laughs> he was very interested in office discipline um, in setting up rules and standards that would be militantly enforced within the FBI. Uh, and he got very worked up about this stuff. Um, if you didn't have your shoes shined properly um, in the 20s and 30s, there are some very funny memos about people who did such unforgivable things as, you know, leave snacks in their drawers and <laughs> hang their coats and galoshes in the wrong place. And, he and, and let's not forget, keep their windows open during winter to prevent what he called heat-induced sloth. That's right. He wanted all of his employees on the alert at all times. And he also thought that all of the shades on the windows at uh, the Justice Department where the FBI had its offices had to be at exactly the same levels so that it would look, you know, very professional from the outside if anyone was looking in. Do you share the view that he was more repressive in his attacks on his personnel than on the criminals? 
I don't know if he was, he was pretty hard on the criminals too. So I don't know if it was more repressive, but he certainly believed that everyone at the FBI was there uh, to be part of an institution that he was in control of, that they represented that institution at all times. And that really extended well beyond what everyone was doing inside the office. He had very high expectations for what his agents were going to do, whether they were going to go to church. Uh, they weren't supposed to be, you know, spending time alone with members of the opposite sex if they weren't married and on and on. One of the things I liked about the book is that you emphasise another of his great misjudgments, and that is his adamant denial of the existence of the mafia. This was uh, an area that Robert Kennedy pointed out when he became attorney general in the early 1960s. He said the FBI had not been doing nearly enough on organized crime. Um, Hoover never forgave him for pointing that out. And I'm sort of of two minds about it. One is that it's obviously true that the FBI could have and should have done more on organized crime. On the other hand, they were doing certain things in the 1950s and 1960s that they didn't want anyone to know about, such as uh, they had actually managed to plant a microphone inside the headquarters of the Chicago mob. And for obvious reasons, they, they didn't want to share that information very widely. So Hoover was really mad at being criticized for all of this uh, when he couldn't come back and say, no, 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 we're really doing stuff because it had to be kept secret. Beverly, which of the eight presidents really wanted to get rid of him? So a, a bunch of them did. <laughs> uh, the first one who really wanted to was Harry Truman. Uh, Truman did not like Hoover, but in many ways, uh, Hoover was actually more powerful than Truman, and uh, certainly in Truman's early years as president. And there's no serious attempt during those years to ease Hoover out. John Kennedy probably disliked Hoover more than any other president did, but he didn't think that he had actually the political clout to get rid of Hoover. And again, never tried seriously to fire him. And the funny thing is that the one president who really did try to ease Hoover out was Richard Nixon, who was actually one of Hoover's closest friends. They had been friends since the 1940s, but Hoover was quite old by the time that Nixon was president. They got in a series of conflicts. Nixon went so far as to actually bring Hoover in for a breakfast meeting and suggest maybe it was time to step down. And Hoover basically said, nope, I don't want to. And Nixon said, oh, well, OK, then. We've, we've talked about Hoover's dirt files on others. Were you interested at all in his sexuality? I was, and I've written quite a lot about that. And I think it's a complicated story um, that is at once very open and then also very secret and kind of hard to read. Um, most of what I wrote about was his relationship with Clyde Tolson, who was the second in command at the FBI for most of his career, but who was also 
really the main relationship of his life and and effectively his social partner. So they, you know, had dinner and lunch together every day. They traveled together. Uh, they went to the racetrack and the nightclub and Broadway shows. And uh, they were really very widely accepted as a, as a couple in all the ways that we might recognize. But we don't really know um, what they were doing in the bedroom, certainly. Some of the best evidence we have are, are, are photos, kind of intimate photos from their vacations together, which Hoover saved for many years. Now, while Hoover was deeply conservative, as we've enumerated, there were times when he took quite enlightened positions on certain issues. These are some of the biggest surprises, or they were for me, because when I started this project, I had pretty much the same idea about J. Edgar Hoover that most people have, which uh, is not so favorable. Um, but there are some really interesting moments where uh, often because of uh, some combination of self-interest and principle, um, he does some some surprising and really admirable things. So he was one of the few federal officials who spoke out against mass Japanese internment during the Second World War. He engaged in a pretty extensive campaign to investigate lynchings in the 1940s. Uh, there are moments when, uh, as I said before, he goes after the Ku Klux Klan, white supremacist groups. Um, there are moments, funny enough, in the Nixon administration where he is sort of acting as the uh, the civil libertarian and the counterweight to Nixon who wants him to be even more aggressive in infiltrating and crushing the left and student groups than Hoover wants to be. So he's a complicated figure, legitimately complicated. Damn you for forcing me to rethink my basic assumptions, Beverly. <laughs> it is an unfortunate fact of, of what actually happened. <laughs> I've been talking to none other than Beverly Gage, Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University and now author after many years of gestation of G-Man J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century and it's highly recommended by the Little Wireless Program. Beverly, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.